This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Rose Fox is on vacation this week. On today's show, author Bill Strever discusses his new book, And Soon I Heard a Roaring Wind, A Natural History of Moving Air. Then, PW Senior News Editor Kelvin Reed takes us inside Comic-Con. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And I'm being joined today by our features editor, the bestseller guru, Carolyn Juris. Hello, Carolyn. Hello, Mark. So glad you could join us. Glad to be here. So what are we seeing in bestsellers uh, this week? We have we have a couple of little trends, maybe? Yeah, it's, you know, it's summertime, so things slow down a bit, but the election keeps powering uh, many of the nonfiction bestsellers this week. And it week. has been a couple for a, for a couple of weeks a, now. a number of weeks yeah. now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This week's debut at number two in hardcover nonfiction is by Dinesh D'Souza, who is probably familiar to many listeners. Uh, that book is called Hillary's America. Um, it is a takedown of the uh, Democratic presidential nominee, uh, as might be expected based mm. on the author's name. Uh, but it's it's sold very well. Uh, number two, as I said, in hardcover nonfiction, it's actually the number six book in the country overall. And then in addition to the Dinesh D'Souza, there are a couple books that seem to have uh, gotten a bit of a boost after the RNC. Uh, Armageddon, which is by Dick Morris and Eileen Morgan, uh, another Clinton takedown is up 224% this week. It moves up wow. 12 spots on the hardcover nonfiction list to number four. Right. Uh, coming at things from a different angle is A Child's <laughs> First Book of Trump by comedian Michael Ian Black and children's book illustrator Mark Rosenthal. It is not, in fact, a children's book. It's on our adult nonfiction list as right. well. And it is up 54% this week. Uh, it wasn't even on the list last week. This wow. week it's at number 17. So, right. so uh, we're seeing these boosts from the uh, Republican National Convention. Definitely. Both uh, positive and negative, depending right. on how you look at it. <laughs> And I, I and as the uh, the Democrat convention is going on right now, I'm, I'm assuming we may see some uh, upticks in books on by or about Hillary, uh, Obama, perhaps afterwards. Uh, it's possible, but it's hard to say which way it's going to go. You can yeah. get people riled up, positive or negative. Right. Uh, so that is the biggest news in hardcover nonfiction, although there's also a, a book just below Hillary's America, kind of a, a 180 from that. It's called The Art of Coloring Disney Animals. It's a hardcover coloring book, right. um, part of the big adult coloring book trend that we've been seeing so much of that is joined by a few books on the paperback list that have been out for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. The Harry Potter coloring books, which again, although that's a children's book, there's a big adult crossover there. There's at least one more coloring book on the paperback list. Right. And we're actually looking at this trend in depth on in Monday's issue. Uh, our Hobbies and Crafts feature is very largely about coloring books because that's kind of the, the big news in crafting these days. We've been talking about and seeing coloring books for 
six, seven months now, a year now, I think. Yeah, it's. I mean, at least since the beginning of this year. I mean, right. there there have been a couple of weeks where ha- fully half of the trade paperback list were, were coloring books. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Are we ready to move to fiction yet? Uh, we are. Uh, well, fiction jumping back to paperbacks. Uh, on the fiction list, the highest debut this week is The Woman in Cabin 10, which is mm. sort of a literary thriller by Ruth Ware. It's uh, from Scout Press, which is a newish imprint of Simon & Schuster's gallery books. So that's at number six with uh, more than 9,000 print units sold. This is her second book. Her debut came out just about a year ago in A Dark, Dark Wood. And that is actually still on our trade paper list. Or it recently came out in trade paperback. And this week it's at number six, Mm -hmm. selling almost 8,000 copies. But so this was a kind of a high profile debut because it was Scout Press's launch. And it was a new book for her or a first time book for her. Um, what's interesting to me is that, you know, Cabin 10 this week, 9,000 print units sold. Her big splashy debut only sold about 3,400 its first week. So she's definitely building her audience. Right. Uh, and then back over in uh, Trade Paper, we have another kind of sophomore book. Uh, this one is by Shane Dawson, who YouTube watchers may know. Uh, he's one of those YouTube uh, celebrities. His first book came out about a year and a half ago called I Hate My Selfie. <laughs> and that uh, did great its first week. It sold about 13,000 copies in trade paper, you know, kind of surprising us all. This week, It Gets Worse, which is his new book. It debuts at number three in trade paperback. It's the number three book in the country overall. 26,000 copies sold. Wow. So um, the Pretty respectable. online celebrity trend shows no sign of letting up. Amazing. And further in the fiction, we have uh, Guilty Minds by Joseph Finder. Uh, this is the, uh, what we say, the lively third Nick Heller novel. Uh, and we say conventions of the contemporary political thriller abound, but a tight plot, sharp dialogue, and a cast of intriguing characters keep the story a cut above the genre pack. And um, finally, we have Jane Green's Falling. Green's latest is a, uh, we say, Chronicles an unlikely romance between 30-somethings from two different worlds. Uh, we say her community is full of nuanced characters that elevate the story above its cookie-cutter beats and add extra impact to the tear-jerking ending. And sounds I think like a beach read to Sounds me. like a beach read. Definitely. Definitely. So, I think that might be it on the bestseller list. Yeah. Hard to believe, but kind of a quiet one. We'll uh, look for things to pick up in a few weeks, I think. Yes. And we'll see what happens with the aftermath of the Democratic Convention. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Bill Strieber gives us a natural history of wind. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Arthur Lubau. I am the author of Dean Arvis, Portrait of a Photographer, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Bill Streber on the line. His new book is And Soon I Heard a Roaring Wind, A Natural History of Moving Air. Hello, Bill. So glad you could join us. Thanks. I'm really honored to be here. So the book's narrative backbone is of your sailing expedition from Texas to Guatemala. Can you tell us about how this came about? Well, sure. You know, um, like a lot of people, I think today, a lot of people in their middle age in in the United States, I wanted to change. My wife wanted to change. So we sort of left our jobs and bought a sailboat and uh, really ill-prepared, decided we were going to sail to 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 Guatemala. We bought the boat in Texas and set off for Guatemala. And uh, 
that's sort of how the narrative came about, I suppose. It's that simple. Um, and once we started sailing, though, you know, wind became a central focus of our lives. And I thought to myself, well, this is a story that other people need to hear. This will interest other people, not just us, not just people living on sailboats. So you've written before about cold and heat, and, and here you are sailing and obviously dealing with wind. Tell us what, what you were thinking as, as you were being, if you were dealing with wind. Well, I guess my thinking as I was dealing with wind was evolving because, you know, we bought this boat and I knew the basics of sailing little day sailors, little 14-foot boats as a kid on, on Lake George in New York. But I'd never sailed a yacht. And our, our boat, Rosinante, is a 44-foot, 20-ton, 50-year-old yacht. So it's a little different than sailing a 14-foot day sailor. And it's a little different how you manage the wind and how you understand the wind. And making a passage across the Gulf of Mexico that's another dimension. It's not just the, the minute-to-minute or hour-to-hour dealing with the wind. It's planning ahead. It's trying to get from point A to point B across, you know, several hundred miles of, of open Gulf of Mexico and then along the coast. So you're thinking about things like uh, northers blowing down through the middle of the continent, so the wind's coming out of the north potentially quite strongly, and then switching back toward the east where the prevailing winds are coming from. Of course, we're trying to go east, and you can't sail straight up wind in a sailboat very well, so you're zigging and zagging, trying to take advantage of every uh, every breeze you get. Um, so our thinking evolved as we went, and as we're sailing, um, stocked up with a library about wind, about the history of forecasting, uh, stuff from Darwin where he talks about uh, ballooning spiders, uh, books by Warren Swan, and he talked about the aeolian biome, so... so you know, we have the tundra biome, the taiga biome, prairie biomes. Well, this fellow Swan came up with the idea of an aeolian biome, a biome that's fully dependent on wind. So, so as we're sailing and as we're dealing every day with the wind, trying to keep ourselves more or less on course toward uh, toward our destination in Guatemala, I'm also reading all this stuff and learning as I go, and, and that's really what the book is. It's sort of a a learning narrative. So, you know, years ago, it used to be very popular to do sailing narratives. Joshua Slocum's sailing narrative and, uh, you know, Moby Dick and books like this are sort of in the genre of sailing narratives. And I started to think of this voyage not as a sailing narrative, but as a learning narrative. And, and maybe all of my books are learning narratives because they're really stories about what I'm learning and, and I'm learning and sharing that with my readers at the same time. So uh, tell us a little bit more about these biomes. Um, where did your research take you? Well, uh, so so I think most of your listeners are going to know generally that a biome is a is sort of a, some people might think of it as an ecosystem or a large community. So I mentioned tundra, I mentioned taiga, prairies. So there's different biomes that are out there. Coral reefs might be considered a biome by some. And Lawrence Swan, who spent, he was a biologist based out of California. He, he was well known when he was alive and uh, probably still well known to some people. But he spent a lot of time in the high mountains um, in different parts of the world. And over time, he realized that above a certain altitude, there was still life up there. And he started asking himself, how does this life sustain itself? It's um, There's not a big primary production system, not a lot of, you know, green biomass up there at the base of the food chain. What's everybody eating up here? And he realized over time that there were these entire areas that were being fed by stuff blown in from on the wind. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens, for example, on, on new volcanic uh, mountainsides. So a volcano erupts, wipes out everything in its path, 
leaves behind some bare rock. And all of a sudden, that bare rock is colonized. And how is it colonized? Well, it's largely colonized by the wind. Different creatures blown in on the wind. And wow. he called that the Aeolian biome for Aeolian, which I guess is uh, Greek slash Latin for, for wind. Uh, right. Uh, and you um, tell us about the trade winds. You talk a lot about trade winds and, and um, how you dealt with them and what what knowledge did you bear from them? Sure, sure. The trade winds, yeah. Um, well, you could talk forever about the trade winds, but I, I guess the, the big message from me on trade winds is that when I started this voyage, I had this vision that we would get out of the variable winds in the northern Gulf of Mexico and that we would get into the trade winds and life would be good because we would have nice steady winds always blowing from the east, always blowing in sort of, you know, 12 to maybe 18 or 20 knots. And we'd be just from a beautiful sail, you know, champagne every day and all that good stuff. Uh-huh. And that's sort of the myth of the trade winds, that they always blow from the same direction, the same speed. And while that's sort of true, it's also sort of not true. And especially sort of not true when you're close to shore or when you're dealing with, with northers and the, that are coming down again from the, the, the middle of the continent in the United States and, and making it all the way down to Guatemala, even into Honduras, right. uh, that affect those trade winds. So, so you sort of, sort of left Texas thinking we're going to go a couple hundred miles, then we're going to be in the trade winds and life will be good. Well, we got into the trade wind belt and, and life wasn't as good as we had hoped. It was still pretty, uh, pretty tricky to keep everything together. But also along the way, I learned more and more about the trade winds and about the history of thinking about the trade winds. And that, that fascinated me. Um, and of course, I, you know, I think, I think most of your listeners have heard of the trade winds and, you know, maybe even seen it in uh, pirate movies or made reference to the trade winds and this kind of thing. And a lot of people probably know that, that Columbus sailed the trade winds over from Europe to the new world, to the so-called new world. So he rode the trade winds, the winds blowing from the east to the west at the latitudes around Cuba. So those are the trade winds, but then along comes Edmund Haley, comet fame, Haley's Comet, yeah. and he tried to uh, map the trade winds. In fact, he did map the trade winds based on uh, accounts from sea captains and his own measurements of winds. And then he tried to explain the trade winds, and he got it totally wrong, completely wrong. Uh, but he did try, so he tried to, to bring both observation and theory together. And then it took uh, several other scientists to really figure out what was going on with making trade winds blow. And, and remember, they at the latitude of around Cuba, they're blowing generally from the east or slightly north of east. And what's making that happen is that in the tropics, it's warmer. We all know that. So the air rises in the tropics from the surface. That air has to be replaced with water from further north, or sorry, with air from further north. And so that air blows in from further north. As it's blowing, the earth is spinning underneath the, the air, and we, we probably all heard of Coriolis effect. So it's a combination of the rising air being replaced by air from further north and the spinning earth, and bingo, you have winds from the east-northeast that are at least reasonably reliable, but not as uh, not as mythically reliable as uh, <laughs> as I thought they would be at the beginning of this voyage. As you've been researching these trade winds, have you, you you noticed or read about changes as the warming of our globe has has increased? Well, there, there's a lot of talk, a lot of speculation about how winds are being impacted by um, by climate change. 
And I think the, the most of what the models are showing or most of what the models are focusing on for climate change seems to be more around uh, precipitation and temperature. Wind is obviously playing a part in it as well. And you you may remember the past couple of years that the east coast of the U.S. has had some pretty cold winters and pretty snowy winters. Um, and that has to do not so much with the trade winds, but with jet streams and a change in what I think is called a Rosby wave in the, in the trade winds. So the trade winds are sort of looping down. I'm oh, sorry, not the trade winds. The jet stream is sort of looping down uh, and bringing cold air masses down into the East Coast that in the past were, were not uh, quite as common as they are for the past couple of years. And there has been some thought that that's related to climate change, but, it, but it's very tough to, to say this phenomenon or that phenomenon is definitely climate change. Now, when you're talking about climate, you're talking about trends. So it's sort of like talking about the stock market. Well, the stock market, the overall trend is that it goes up over periods of decades, but what it does next month or even next year is, is sort of anybody's guess and anybody's explanation. Give us a little uh, science discussion on wind, how it's created, what makes it change. A little science discussion on wind. Okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, well, you know, wind, wind is, it's, it's pretty simple when you think about it. Wind is air blowing from an a area of uh, high pressure toward an area of low pressure. And I say toward an area of low pressure because as it's blowing toward the lower pressure, it's going to, to ter- turn, it's going to twist because the earth is spinning underneath it. And, and all of what I just said is a gross oversimplification of what's going on. Um, but, it, but it pretty quickly leads you to the question, okay, well, what is low pressure and what is high pressure? And also what makes one area a low pressure area and another area a high pressure area. So, so low pressure and high pressure, think of it as a, a cubic foot of air. Uh, a low pressure area has fewer air molecules in it than a high pressure area. So a high pressure area has more molecules, a low pressure area fewer. Yes. Wind is molecules from that high pressure, lots of molecules concentrated moving to that lower pressure where there's more space. Okay, so that doesn't really answer anybody's question. Where, where does that where does that low pressure and high pressure come from? Well, mostly from temperature gradients. So the sun is shining down and it's, it's putting more heat in the tropics than it is at the poles. So there, there's a temperature gradient there that turns into a pressure gradient. Uh, likewise, if you're, um, for example, in the shadow of a mountain, it's cooler than it is uh, in the sunny side of a mountain. So one side of the mountain is heating up, air is becoming less dense, it's rising. The cooler air from the shady side of the mountain is moving perhaps across the ground toward the toward the area that's uh, been vacated by the rising air on the sunny side of the mountain. And then you see the same thing with sea breezes and land breezes on the ocean. So that the ocean is warming up uh, during each day. So the sun rises and the ocean warms a little uh, less quickly than the land. So that creates this temperature differential that turns into a pressure differential that generates a wind. Well, so now we have uh, uh, an explanation about that. Uh, so the subtitle of your book is A Natural History of Moving Air. And, and in it, you, you, you talk about those who have uh, tried to study it or harness it. And you talk a bit about Benjamin Franklin, among many others. Yeah, uh, Benjamin Franklin, among many others. You're right. That's right. <laughs> so Benjamin Franklin, um, of course, we know him for lots and lots and lots of different things. But he, he was an early figure who noted, uh, very casually, as it turns out, that the direction of the wind on the ground is not a very good, good predictor of which direction storms are going. 
And he predicted or he observed that during a, a solar eclipse in a sort of a famous story. He was writing a letter to his friend in Boston about the solar eclipse, and the solar eclipse had been blocked in some areas by the storm that blew through. And the wind where Franklin was standing was blowing from Boston towards Philadelphia, where he lived. So he assumed that the storm had hit Boston before it had hit Philadelphia. Well, it didn't. It hit Philadelphia first and then moved on to Boston. So it was moving the opposite direction of the wind that he experienced on the ground. And, you know, Franklin wrote lots and lots of papers and poor Richard's Almanac and all kinds of other uh, things. But he never really wrote this up, this idea up, other than in a couple of letters to friends. And then in a map that he published in his own print shop, it wound up, and he did not claim credit for the map itself, but a note that he wrote up in the corner of the, of the map explained what he observed about this wind. So Benjamin Franklin, for all of his accomplishments, uh, a, a very, very uh, modest guy in some ways, where he would give away this fairly profound observation to a, a colleague, a friend of his, who had made a map, and he just kind of plunked down this idea on the corner of the map. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Bill Strieber, the author of And Soon I Heard a Roaring Wind, A Natural History of Moving Air. Uh, we've been talking about um, his uh, uh, sailing expedition with his wife from Texas to Guatemala, but also about the history of, of, uh, of the study of wind. We're talking about Benjamin Franklin. Um, tell us about the, the, the science of barometry. Well, the science of barometry, the measurement of air pressure. So barometers measure air pressure, and um, I guess it's almost that simple. The original barometers were, were water-filled tubes, and they had to be around 33 feet tall to measure uh, the air pressure at, at one atmosphere at the surface of the Earth. Uh, there were some folks in Italy that actually built some of these things, and there's some drawings from the, the time showing these 33 feet, you know, three and a half, four-story tall barometers sitting on the streets in different cities in, in Rome. And then, of course, fairly soon after that, uh, an Italian named Torricelli realized that you could do the same thing with mercury. You could fill a tube with mercury, and then it wouldn't have to be 33 feet long. It'd be much, uh, much shorter. And now you still hear people talking about inches of mercury as a measure of atmospheric pressure, as a matter of measuring air pressure. Even even though today it's very unusual for people to use a mercury-filled barometer, it's more done with electronic barometers or with aneroid barometers that are sort of mechanical uh, mechanical devices that replace that mercury barometer. So I want to talk about weather forecasting. Um, uh, take us a little bit of the history. Maybe uh, you, you know we say in our review you recount the uh, transformation of the weather forecast from its origins and. Uh, a kind of qualitative theory uh, through the development of graphical and numerical methods. To take us through the history. You, you had mentioned Benjamin Franklin and what he noticed um, of, of forecasting from, from then to the modern day. 
you know, that that is such a long story. So what I'd like to do is instead of taking you all the way through the, the history of forecasting, maybe just highlight a couple of things that are very, very important to the story. Sounds great to so, me. Okay, good, good. <laughs> so, so if you go back 150 years, of course, people have always said, well, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? And you could always find somebody that, that would make a guess at what the weather would be like. But usually it was a guess, or it might be, maybe it's a sea captain, so it's a guess that's tempered by experience and observation. But it was more or less a guess. And then a, a number of different things happened, um, one of which was the invention of the telegraph, so people could start sending information around, saying what the weather was doing in different parts of, of a region, and get it all concentrated before the weather had time to change, so they could start sort of mapping the weather. And that, that helped this sort of qualitative assessment of what the weather was going to do tomorrow, and et cetera, et cetera. But a big breakthrough came around 19, if I remember right, around 1904, with a Norwegian scientist named Wilhelm Jerkness. And Wilhelm Jerkness uh, looked at the atmosphere, and he said, you know, the atmosphere should follow the laws of physics, just like everything else follows the laws of physics. And, and of course, to... To our listeners out there, they're going to say, well, of course, why is that a breakthrough? So you have to go put yourself back in 1904 and realize that, indeed, this was a breakthrough. In 1904, there were a lot of very respectable scientists who were completely baffled by the atmosphere. So along comes Bjerknes, and he says, look, it's going to follow the laws of physics, and because of that, we can we can understand it mathematically. So that's a big breakthrough. But he said, the math is too tough. I'm not going to do it with the math. I'm going to use graphics combined with a little bit of math. Uh, and see where we go. And that's the way he went. But then along comes another man named Lewis Fry Richardson. And I have to confess, Richardson is, is one of my personal heroes. He's not a, not a very well-known scientist anymore, but to me, he's an amazing man, a pacifist and a brilliant scientist. And Richardson said, you know, the math really isn't that tough. The math is just repetitive. It's repetitive. So what he did was he came up with a scheme where he sort of built a three-dimensional chessboard around a region or around the earth, and he filled that the cells in that three-dimensional chessboard with equations. So he would run these equations in each cell, and the results from one cell would then be fed to the next cell, and he could use that to project forward in time by doing these equations at one after another after another after another. And he was doing this back in the time of World War One, and in fact, uh, he was a pacifist, so he didn't fight in the war, but instead volunteered to drive an ambulance, which... Uh, you know, the ambulance driving corps, that was tough duty in World War One. These guys were driving ambulances through gas attacks and uh through you know, through all the terrible things that happened in the war, going up to the lines to pick up the wounded and bring them back behind the lines where they could be treated. And while he's doing this, when he has rest breaks, he's working on these calculations. He's he's computing the weather while he's while he's fighting or while he's driving an ambulance in World War One, he's also doing his best to compute the weather. So he does this and he finishes it. And what comes from that is a realization that, yeah, it's possible, but it's so labor-intensive, it's never going to happen. And then that brings us to the next really historical landmark, computers. So one of the early programmable computers called ENIAC, I-N-I-A-C, I think, was used to uh, run a forecast of the weather using methods very similar to what Richardson had used way back in 1924. So, so we went from 1924 with Richardson to 1950 with ENIAC. And we said, hey, we, we can do a forecast with these computers. They're well-suited for this kind of repetitive work. And it worked. Mm. And then gradually, computer forecasting became more and more prevalent. And the next thing 
and this is all I know this is going to be a long story of where you would be with just the highlights. <laughs> but the next the next big thing and the last big thing that I'll, that I'll probably stop with for now was chaos theory. So so people are running computers and they're running weather models. And along comes a man named Edward Lorenz. And Edward, Edward Lorenz had a, an old, what today would be an old computer. It was the size of a desk, weighed 700 pounds, full of tubes and diodes and all kinds of things that, that aren't really used in computers anymore. But he was running weather equations. And he ran his one particular equation or set of equations he ran twice. And he ran it once with the original data. And then he ran it again with a subset of that original data that he thought was the same, and he expected to get exactly the same output, but he didn't get the same output. And he scratched his head, and he wondered, and he wondered, well, why didn't I get the same output from these runs? That doesn't make any sense. And he realized that when he put the subset of data in, he only took it out to three decimal points. So the original data was out to six decimal points. The new data was out to three decimal points. And he realized that very small differences in the input data can lead to very big differences in the output. And that uh, became part of what's known as chaos theory. And weather, as it's described numerically, abides by chaos theory. And that's why forecasts are no good after, or I shouldn't say no good, forecasts are less and less good as you go further and further forward in time. So nowadays, a modern forecast that goes out three days or so is fairly reliable in most parts of the world. But if you go out two weeks, it's uh, pretty unreliable in most parts of the world. So there you have the history of weather forecasting. Oh. Sorry, it's long-winded. I know. No, I'm glad. I'm glad for that. I, I want to talk a little bit about your your time on the boat and um, what were some of the surprises you 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 came across. I mean, I, as you had talked about before, this was an idea that came to you about you know to write the book uh, while you and your wife were sailing. So, what were some of the surprises, like a big surprise, something that you noted um, that you didn't expect? Well, in, in terms of winds, I mentioned already the biggest surprise to me was that the trade winds were not nearly as reliable, right. nor as friendly as I'd hoped they would be. But but there's all kinds of other life surprises. So you know, I've dreamed of sailing around the world really as long as I can remember. It's something I always wanted to do. And uh, when I met my wife, I had, she she always tells people within five minutes of meeting me, you said, you know, I'm going to sail around the world. <laughs> and so here we are, beginning our journey, but really honestly not knowing what we were doing. I mean, we'd taken a three-day sailing course and a few day sails along the coast and then set off. So we had lots and lots of surprises. Tell us a little bit about the journey itself. Uh, how, how long were you at sea versus maybe uh, going to shore or docking? Sure, sure. So so our longest stretch at sea was, was 10 days, which doesn't sound like much. And uh, in many ways, it's not much. Um you know, obviously, there's there's people nowadays that that go all the way around the world without ever making landfall, and I would never do that. But uh, if you sail around the world, you're you're going to do passages of 25 to maybe 30 days at the longer stretches of ocean between between landfalls. But we were just crossing the Gulf of Mexico, so it was 10 days. Uh, we we set out from Texas. We had to go east, and of course, we're fighting the prevailing winds are out of the east, so we're fighting those east winds. Right. We, we go east as far as we can, and then we head south, hoping to make landfall in Islam Harris, uh, in Mexico near Cancun. And 150 or so miles, uh, from, from that landfall, the wind changes, and it does something that's fairly, well, more than fairly, very unusual. The very unusual wind, it switched and was coming from the south, and the forecast was telling us, look, it's going to be coming from the, the south. 
for the next three days. And of course, that's exactly the direction we needed to go. So we we said, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to tack? Are we going to go all you know, tack? In other words, sail zigzag across that wind until you get to your destination. Or, and this is what we decided to do, why don't we just turn and go to Florida? So we just made a sharp left. <laughs> and two days later, two days later, we were in Florida. And right. we took a break in Venice, Florida, and waited for a favorable wind. And when that favorable wind came, we uh, took off again and had great winds uh, and made us on the Harris from Venice in about, uh, if I remember right, about two and a half, three days. Now, were you writing uh, as you were sailing? Uh, how, how did the process work, or did you take the journey, uh, take notes, read, research, and, and write afterwards? Uh, all of the above. So I, I was taking notes, and parts of the book are, uh, well, I, I was taking notes in the form of a journal. So part of the book came, at least the initial drafts, came right out of that journal. Um, other parts were fleshed in later as I realized that there were things I didn't know, and I had to come back to them. and uh, sort of better understand them. And then, of course, there's a whole lot of rearranging. And, you know, it may not look like it to a reader. In fact, I actually hope it doesn't look apparent to a reader. But the, the structure of my books is, is very heavily choreographed because I'm trying to convey ideas. I'm trying to share a learning experience. And that's that doesn't work haphazardly. So um, experiences that are happening to me on the boat and things that I'm learning on the boat by virtue of sailing the boat and, and thinking about the wind are juxtaposed with learnings that I'm getting out of books about the history of forecasting and about biology and wind mm-hmm. and about um, geography of wind and that sort of thing. So so a lot of the writing was done aboard, but then like a jigsaw puzzle that's scrambled up in a box, it has to be put together and made sense of. And that was done later back uh, after the sale had been completed. So you've uh, th- this book is on wind. You've written, as I'd mentioned before, uh, on heat. Your book was Heat, Adventures in the World's Fiery Places, and also on cold. Um, what's in store next? Have you given it thought? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have lots of ideas kicking around. Um, one is to look at uh, what I call the opening of the deep sea. And, mm. uh, you know, the, the humans reached the bottom of the deep sea or very close to the deep point in the sea back in 1960 in the Trieste uh, and then uh, we've returned we human beings have returned once since then to the bottom of the deep sea and the deep sea covers uh, depending on how you define the deep sea it covers about two thirds of the earth it's full of resources it's full of unknown uh, science and uh, unknowns in terms of how to protect it while also perhaps extracting some of the resources. So, and I think there's a story there. So so that may be what's coming next. And how do you think you'll research that? Do you think you'll be diving? I'm always diving. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always diving. Unfortunately, I don't think I'll be able to afford to get to the bottom of the Mariana's Trench or the Challenger Deep, but uh, I'm always diving. So so there would be some of that in the, in the book. Certainly. We've been talking with Bill Streeper. You can find his book, And Soon I Heard a Roaring Wind, A Natural History of Moving Air, in stores right now. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed talks about Comic-Con. Stay tuned. Yo, yo, what's up? I'm Daryl McDaniels, the author of 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us about last week's Comic-Con. So, hello, Calvin. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Always good to have you on. So, um, tell us about it. Well, I'm just beginning to recover. Um, <laughs> well, uh, San Diego Comic-Con International, uh, the biggest pop culture festival in North America, 130 to 160,000 people. Uh, nobody really knows for sure. Right. <laughs> but let me tell you, uh, it, it's packed. This has traditionally been the, uh, the platform for launching comics, um, graphic novels. We're also in a period of tremendous uh, optimism in the comics industry. Uh, PW did a, a report uh, a couple of months ago about new figures for the size of the the comics market in, in North America, and that's graphic novels, book format comics, combined with traditional comic books, periodicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new estimate for 2015 was over a billion dollar industry, the vast majority of the growth being in book format comics. That's graphic novels, um, and including like a 23% growth in book format comics alone. So what we're seeing is uh, in North America is the comics uh, market is growing, uh, that comics um, and a diverse genres of comics are growing in the book trade. Mm-hmm. Now, the books are also sold in the comic shop market. So this year's Comic-Con, in many ways, kind of reflected that. It was a very optimistic feel to it. The impact of movies, which have been tremendous on Comic-Con, mm-hmm. um, and in, it's contributed to the incredible explosion of, of popularity, but also really... Publishers Weekly is one of the few news journals that covers Comic-Con as a publishing event. Though that, at its core, that's what it is and has always been. There are scores of publishers, large, from the biggest DC, Marvel, IDW, and the like, to the smallest uh, literary publishers, Fanographics, Drawn and Quarterly, Fanfare, Opponent Mon, a little UK house that publishes wonderful graphic novels. They're all there. They've all got books for the fall. They've all got great books, and they're selling them. So, um, but, you know, most of the news that you hear coming out of Comic-Con is about movies and TV shows. And that was there as well. But there was a slightly lower profile. I think one of the studios wasn't there at all. I think it was Fox. Of course, there was a lot of news about the um, Marvel had the cast for Black Panther, the next film coming up, um, as well as for um, the Luke Cage Netflix show that's starting in the fall. Mm -hmm. DC was showcasing Suicide Squad. You know, that's the next big blockbuster superhero film for DC characters coming out, I think, the first week of August. Right. Um, And, you know, they previewed footage of Justice League that's coming, too. So that's all there. But I was really encouraged by um, the incredible uh, impact and range of comics that were available. Uh, The Eisner Awards, that's the Will Eisner Comic Industry Awards. They are the the National Book Awards of the comics industry. Uh, They happen each year at Comic-Con, and they award the best books, best graphic novels, and periodical comics of the previous year. The winner, one of the winners this year, Representative John Lewis, Mm. uh, the legendary uh, civil rights congressman whose graphic bio, March, Volume 2-1, uh, the nonfiction award. Um, he's done that with his co-author, uh, Andrew Iden, who is his uh, actually congressional assistant, and Nate Powell, a, a really uh, um, critically acclaimed graphic novel. It's a three-book series. The third volume just came out this year. It's a bestseller. It's an absolutely heroic look back at the civil rights movement through the life 
of John Lewis. What could be better to go to a comic book convention and have an American right. hero, a, a true American superhero, win at one of its highest awards in a story that is better. It's better than the most <laughs> superhero adventure novels. Talk about adventure. Right. Uh, and all uh, for uh, human rights and civil rights uh, and really great Americans. So, I could go on on and on <laughs> and, uh, as long as you need. But it was sure. a good con and it, uh, with a lots of good material. So, you were just saying, and we've talked about this, that it really was started as as a publishing con. You know, these are, you were talking sure. about publishing mm-hmm. in books. Tell us about how it changed and also why is it always in San Diego? I mean, you, you think Have that- Have you ever like been a, to San Diego? <laughs> no, well, this is it. Well, what is going on? I mean, like we know that BEA is, uh, for the most part, New York, unless it mm. changes, but because of the book publishers mm-hmm. are, are here, many of you know, the big ones. How did it start in San Diego? Um, well, as I understand it, it started by a bunch of really intense collectors- Comics collectors mm-hmm. in San Diego. Uh, there were also a number of comics artists that lived there. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a lot of – there is a kind of an uh, – I might be wrong about this, but I didn't think there's part of the animation industry and there are just a lot of comics right. people that do live there. But it started uh, – I believe this is the 47th year wow. of Comic-Con. It started as an old-fashioned comic book right. convention and for those of you who are not familiar with that the old kind is that, that we used to call them the long box convention and that's where comic book nerds would gather together and uh, dealers would show up and they would have the if you've ever been to an old fashioned comic shop there's always the back issue bins and there are these long white boxes they're all archival boxes and they're usually jammed with comics in plastic bags and what the Cons used to be were a way that fans could get together, talk about their collections, and then fill them in by going through the dealer's back issue boxes. Over time, it built into more of what we see the modern Comic-Con as. Now, first, eventually this dealer's convention became a nonprofit charged with its mission, which is to promote uh, the popular and the lively arts. Mm -hmm. So uh, Comic-Con International San Diego, which is the actual real name, is really a nonprofit, uh, unlike New York Comic-Con. I mean, Comic-Con has become sort of like, you know, a generic name. It doesn't really own, it's not really owned by anyone. Right. Um, Not like... Book Expo America. No, it's not, right. you know. So, and if you look closely, you know, the Comic-Cons are often spelled differently, and those are trademarked. I noticed, right. This one has yeah. the hyphen. So, Comic-Con International San Diego is, has the hyphen. New York Comic-Con does not have a, a hyphen. There is no relationship between the two at all. Wow. And, of course, New York Comic-Con is owned by Reed Exhibitions or Reed Pop, right. and is a for-profit right. business, whereas Comic-Con International is a non-profit. Oh, um, so, uh, over time, really, uh, San Diego Comic-Con is the granddaddy of them all. It really has led the way. It's shown everyone how a modern comic convention should be done. It is a high-tech affair these days. In fact, one of the things uh, showcased it this year was RFID technology, which actually is also uh, in use at New York Comic-Con. But it has actually helped. One of the things people talked about was that it cut down on some of the floor traffic from counterfeit badges. People estimated maybe 10,000 to 15,000 people. So actually, preview night, which is a special night on Wednesday, the Wednesday before the show opens, it's usually a three-hour preview for the media and people who buy, you know, VIPs, people who buy four-day passes can get in and you can walk around and see it. Right. It used to be as crowded as Saturday. It got gotten out of hand. Um, but it was a lot of people, but it was still much calmer. And actually, 
most of the days of the show, except for Saturday, mm-hmm. seemed a little calmer this year. So I, it really seems as though they cut down on some of the uh, counterfeit badges and some of the extraneous traffic. Wow. So that made an impact uh, on this year's Comic-Con as well. So let's talk about the publishing aspect of it. Sure. The, uh, you, you were saying that it's in ways not seen as much as a publishing event when, in fact, it is. I mean, it's it's mostly – it's become – there's the big draw has been with for the films yes. or the offshoots of, of any given comic book. Yeah, it, that's what – I mean, when, when the mass media of broadcasting and film and TV, which I should say were always there – Mm-hmm. Um, I started going to Comic Con, I think, in the late '90s, and it was still getting—it was getting eighty or ninety thousand people mm. at the time. So it was—it wasn't just a little tiny arty show, right? right. You know, it was a big, <laughs> crazy convention, and there were movie studios there. And but the difference was in those days, you could just show up at the panel and walk in. And what happened? What's been happening the last few years is that it, 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 Hollywood discovered it the nerds as a marketing platform. Mm. You could pitch your movie to the nerds. You get the buzz started early if they like it. And if they right. don't like it, they can sing it too. Right, right. Uh, then you, you, you've you gone a long way toward marketing your blockbuster project. Over the last 10 years, though, it just got crazy because Hollywood kind of took over Comic-Con. I mean, they draped the buildings in massive billboards. You you had to sleep out overnight to get into Hall H, the notorious Hall H, <laughs> right. where which holds about six or seven thousand people, and it's usually where they do the big reveals, where they bring out the, the cast of the movie and they right. show show uh, exclusive clips of the upcoming films. It, it was the hottest ticket. You could actually, for some most of these panels, I was told you could actually walk up on the morning of and get in, and that's never been that hasn't yeah. been the case the last five to ten years. So we seem to see uh, some pulling back. Uh, I think that the the cost of taking over Comic Con was getting pretty ex- exorbitant. Yeah, and, and to that extent, I think to whatever extent the movie industry has taken a step back, it's I think it's allowed certainly allowed me to, to get out, you know, of news about the publishing world because that's what it is. At the core of San Diego Comic Con is comics. And what's going on in the comics world? Uh, and what's going on in the comics world? Comics are more various and more popular than ever before. Comics are are blowing up in bookstores. Girls and women's and diversity issues are, are rife throughout the comics business. A business that's been a boys club in right. the worst right. possible way possible. Ended it since that there were almost no comics. Uh, for many, is designed or marketed to women and girls at all. And when they tried to get in, uh, they were shot down. The fanboys uh, right. were agitated about it. They were even, uh, I think, back in the uh, Twilight, when Twilight started. Right. And uh, there were big movie um, movie things there about uh, uh, the, the release of the film. And teenage girls were showing up. There was a sort of clash of, uh, clash of cultures. Right. Um, but believe me, uh, the girls ain't hanging back. They love comics too. Manga proved that. Right. Uh, that was a big draw for, for teenage girls and ultimately for, for women. Uh, I think if you look through superhero comics now, there's been a huge push. And we haven't even talked about the Eisner Awards. It, oh, we did talk briefly about right. uh, the um, really the, uh, uh, the, the, the honor of John Lewis winning an Eisner. But Linda Berry, the tremendous uh, alternative cartoonist, mm. uh, was inducted into the Hall of Fame. That, that was to, to a roar of approval from wow. the audience. Matt Groening was also uh, – they're classmates, by the way. They went to school together. And really? They were old friends, as a matter of fact. But uh, Kate Beaton, who does these super smart – 
smart and hilarious history comics. Her Hark of Vagrant collection, uh, Step Aside Pops, won the best humor publication. And she, and, and when she accepted her, her Eisner Award, she said, well, you know, it's nice to get this award at a time when you can still read articles asking whether women can be funny. So, uh, I mean, so, right. uh, you know, women were there, um, in every way. It, it was, uh, the, the, the comics industry, is changing in every way, not only in what it is offering, but who is buying. So we're seeing a proliferation of all kinds of genres beyond the superhero genre, which has dominated North American comics for years. And we're seeing an influx of diversity on the mm-hmm. fan side, not women, girls, and uh, ethnic backgrounds, uh, wow. non-white backgrounds of all kinds. So we're truly getting a comics industry that looks like America. Right, 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 right. right. Oh, this is wonderful. Well, uh, and I think those of you who want to read more can go on our site, publishersweekly.com, and get a uh, in-depth, a uh, little more detail. Yeah, can I can I pluck yeah, our, our covers it. just a little bit? Yeah, please go to publishersweekly.com slash comics. We, you can, we've got a, uh, uh, there's a link up there for all of our coverage. Uh, Heidi McDonald, our graphic novels review editor, and myself, we were there. We did... Uh, we have exclusive interviews with um, Dennis wow. Kitchen from um, the Great Underground Comics publisher Brian Lee O'Malley, who did the Scott Pilgrim, William Gibson, who's doing a comic. Oh, wow. He's there. Uh, Grant Morrison, the great comics writer by Heidi. So we've got exclusive interviews. We've got coverage of manga at there, of children's comics, uh, of the goings on on the floor. So. Go to publishersweekly.com slash comics and you can get your total fix for all things San Diego Comic-Con. Fans, you hear that? Publishersweekly.com slash comics. Go there. Get everything you need. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Yaa Jesse, the author of Homegoing, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another insightful interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 